You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm once again recording this in the dead of night because I've got another friend's birthday shenanigans this weekend. I am very tired and just drank what I'm sure will be an ill-advised giant iced tea when it comes bedtime. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Triangle of Sadness and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Triangle of Sadness is a pitch black comedy that is an at times on the nose and a little too long satire of extreme wealth, the modeling industry and influencer culture and how someone's lack of wealth in the money or looks department places them lower on an unseen but so often felt hierarchy. That is until those extremely wealthy and or beautiful people find themselves in a situation where all of that means nothing. I really like this movie. It was too long. It got a little bit, like, I don't want to say dumb, but, like, goofy for the sake of being goofy in parts. But it was it was pretty highbrow, if that's your thing. It was fun. I was, you know, due for a dose of what I, what I always call, like, taking my broccoli movies where they're a little bit more artsy than they are commercial. And it's always fun to watch wealthy people have a bad time. Also, just a warning before you go see this film, if you get triggered by other people throwing up or bodily functions, the middle of this movie is going to be a rough ride for you. Then there's Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which instantly became, if not in the top three Marvel movies for me, then definitely top five. The director, Ryan Coogler, presented a raw, honest depiction of grief and loss in a goddamn superhero movie. As I've said in the past, I love me my Marvel movies, and this is easily the best one to come out since Endgame. I walked out of that movie needing a hug, a shot, a warm bath, a punch in the guts, and then a long nap. I just wanted to feel anything else other than sad. Cannot recommend it enough. And now, on to this week's topic. This week, the history of Columbia Pictures, the studio that rose out of the ashes of Poverty Row to become one of the biggest film studios in the world. As always, we're focusing on the golden age, its founders, and going up all the way to the modern day. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Jack and Harry Cohn were born into a working-class German-Jewish family in New York City. 
Harry would drop out of school and work a series of odd jobs, including performing on the vaudeville circuit. While brother Jack started his career at 19 in the independent moving pictures company Film Laboratory, where he later get involved with editing and printing. By 1913, both brothers would be employed at the New York headquarters of Imp, now called Universal Film Manufacturing Company, with Jack as the head of production and Harry working as Carl Lemley's secretary. The Cone brothers would make their first film together in 1913 for Universal, which was called Traffic and Souls, a crime film that dealt with forced sex work. Five years after this, the brothers and fellow former Universal employee Joe Brandt would strike out on their own. FYI, some of these dates shift a year or so depending on the source, but I stuck with the ones that came from the more reputable ones. On June 19, 1918, Cone Brandt Cone, or CBC Film Cells, was founded. Brandt and Jack were co-presidents, and Harry headed up production. Their first films were three shorts shot in New York and based on H.A. McGill's Hall Room Boys cartoons. The shorts failed hard and nearly bankrupt the studio outright. Other early projects included the documentary serial screen Snapshots, which showed behind-the-scenes footage of motion pictures, which did yield some success. So much so that the Cones, whom were better known than Brandt, would often be referred to as the short subject kings. Harry went west to Hollywood because that's where the best film talent was, and it also happened to be as far away from his two partners as he could get without leaving the United States, as he was known for regularly sparring with them, especially his own brother. For the next several months, Harry managed to make CBC's shorts cheaply using leftover film stock purchased from other studios. He rented or borrowed everything he possibly could and actually managed to churn out decent films. This ultimately allowed Harry to rent a studio at the corner of Sunset and Gower in 1922. This spot was considered the beginning of Poverty Row, which was a stretch on Gower Street in Hollywood in the 1920s to 50s where many, often short-lived, small movie studios would set up shop and where actors' careers would typically go to die. CBC's first major film, More to be Pitied Than Scorned, a melodrama starring Alice Lake, released on August 20, 1922, and proved a financial success for the company. This success allowed the studio to make 10 films in 1923, and all 10 either broke even or turned a profit. Despite having a better track record than most other studios, CBC couldn't shake their reputation as a second-rate studio. In fact, many of the Hollywood elite would refer to CBC as corned beef and cabbage. When Harry heard about their little nickname, he was furious. Obviously, you don't want your studio to be known as Corned Beef and Cabbage, so the trio renamed the company Columbia Pictures Corporation on January 10th, 1924. Brandt was president, Jack VP, and Harry was also a VP and director general of production. The following year, they bought that Poverty Row studio for $150,000. Jack handled all the accounting and the thankless job of securing distribution from New York. Brand was company president until 1932, when he got sick of the brothers and sold his shares to Harry, who became president in the process. Jack would remain VP and treasurer. To give you an idea of what was going on around this time, Harry, while having a nose for talent, was wildly disliked by virtually everyone who worked for him. He was cheap, rude, crude, tyrannical, uneducated, which he was insecure about, and loved to nitpick anybody at any moment for any reason at all. 
Meanwhile, Jack was over in New York and essentially acted as the company's banker, far away from the creative process. Because Columbia didn't own its own theater chains, Jack had to fight daily to secure venues for even their highest quality pictures. Jack, who unlike his brother was formally educated, was the brawn and the brains behind Columbia Pictures. However, Harry got all the attention. So much so that it would be Harry's reputation that became synonymous with Columbia and its legacy. Even though Harry would have to get approval from Jack for the duration of their time at Columbia, Harry made sure this fact was kept more or less a secret. He wanted to be seen as the monarch of Columbia, which is probably why many refer to him as King Kong. Also, it sounds like King Kong, and I'm guessing that wasn't a coincidence. Brandt would play middleman betwixt the two for those eight years, and the brothers continued to fight incessantly as they had their entire lives until Brandt decided he'd had enough. Harry was reportedly always jealous of his older brother and felt he was always in his shadow. That's a middle child energy if I've ever heard it. Harry accused Jack of not knowing anything about the art of making movies, and Jack accused Harry of not knowing anything about business. And in their own ways, both were kind of correct in these arguments. The truth was that if the other one had the other one's job, Columbia would have failed. They also didn't realize that, you know, when you're on the creative side of things versus the business side of things, you're dealing with two completely different types of people. It's just, and that was something that neither of them could really understand or appreciate. Talking to creatives is a lot different than talking to finance or business people. In many ways, in fact, these two different, often tumultuous approaches to their work kept the studio profitable for the rest of their lives. After his departure from Columbia, Brandt would go back to practicing law as he'd done before he got brought into the film industry, but would die of lymphoma before the end of the decade. Harry would be the driving force behind Columbia's rise in quality alongside the other major Hollywood studios. He would serve as president from 1932 until his death. Like Lemley, the Cones would also be notorious for having scores of their relatives on the payroll. For most studios, it was standard procedure that production heads focused on the quality of the movies while the presidents concerned themselves with profit. Because Harry was now both, he had to grapple with both. As a result, Columbia had more specialized contracts and personalized deals compared to other studios. Harry also made sure to continue the practice of extreme frugality in their productions. And this is a good place as any to mention the fact that, you know, he he was just a full-blown piece of shit. Harry Cohn was known for demanding sexual favors and the like from his female stars, a notorious implementer of the casting couch, and the word no really didn't have a sway over him. Harry was also known to enjoy eavesdropping on a play conversations using concealed microphones on sound stages and in dressing rooms. Several actresses would even quit the business altogether out of fear of what Harry would do if they were alone in a room with him. His office, which was strategically difficult to get to, had no doorknob on the inside. So if they wanted to leave, Harry had to let them leave. Harry Cohn was yet another member of the disgusting underbelly of Hollywood history. Columbia would take its first shot at the A-picture business with 1927's The Blood Ship, which was the first to feature the studio's now iconic, toga-wearing, torch-bearing woman, let's say mascot, and starred Hobart Bosworth, an actor whose star was in the decline, so much so he had agreed to appear in the picture for free. For the next several years, as they had no theater chain, Columbia had to rely on the goodwill and business dealings with the other studios to get their films into theaters. But this struggle wouldn't be around for them for much longer. 
The major boost for Columbia into the big leagues would occur in no small part thanks to the arrival of director Frank Capra to the studio payroll. If Capra had gone somewhere else, chances are pretty good we would be talking about a different studio right now. From about 1927 to 1939, Capra constantly pushed Harry for better material for his films, as well as bigger budgets than what Harry usually doled out. Capra also directed the studio's first talkie, 1929's The Donovan Affair. Much of Columbia's rise into the big leagues was thanks to Capra's 1934 comedy It Happened One Night, which became the first film to ever win the big five Oscar categories, picture director, actor, actress, and screenplay, which was a shock to everyone and was the thing that put Columbia on the map. The film had been, as legend has it, a punishment for its male league, Clark Gable, from his studio MGM. The head of MGM, Louis B. Mayer, often referred to sending actors to Colombia as being sent to Siberia. And its female lead, Claudette Colbert, only agreed to make the film if it wrapped in time for her planned skiing vacation. Other Capra-directed hits soon followed, including the original version of Lost Horizon and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which after years of small parts made James Stewart a major star away from his home studio MGM. Capra would be one of a very small number of people whom dared to fight with Harry Cohn and still got his way most of the time. Capra would refer to Harry as his crudeness. Like Universal, Columbia at this time relied heavily on borrowing talent from bigger studios. One major talent they did have on the payroll, well, three major talents that is, was the Three Stooges, which Harry signed to the roster in 1934 after they'd been let go from MGM. Originally, they'd been known as Ted Healy and his Stooges, but MGM kept Healy while his Stooges had gotten the boot. After two successful shorts at Columbia, the trio was signed for a one-year deal. Within their first year at the studio, Harry was able to use the Stooges as leverage to get Columbia's lesser B-movies into theaters because the demand for the Stooges films were astronomical. He would not give a theater a Stooges film without at least one other Columbia film also being booked. This was, according to historians, something the Stooges were never made fully aware of, likely because they themselves could have used this to leverage their paychecks. In fact, Harry would regularly lie to them about their success, especially around contract renewal time, which for the Stooges was every single year. Most of them had like a three to five year contract. The Stooges was renewed every single year. The Three Stooges would remain at the studio for 23 years with the constant fear of being fired. They never got a salary increase, nor did they ever ask for one. It wasn't until December 1957 that they learned of Harry's tactics, what a valuable commodity the Stooges had been for the studio, and how many millions more the trio should have earned. According to Bob Thomas's book, King Cone, Harry was hyper-focused on producing serials, which Columbia started producing in 1937 until they lost popularity in 1956. Some of the most famous Columbia serials were based on comic strip or radio characters and included Captain Midnight, Batman, and Superman. Harry also made sure there were plenty of westerns out in the market, and the studio had a dedicated unit for shooting western B-pictures. 
When World War II ramped up, the Coens knew they were about to see a pretty decent decrease in their foreign box office. So Harry established new priorities for Columbia's production end, which took the form of a pyramid hierarchy that went from A films to serials. During the war, the studio's stock would be equal to that of Warner Brothers or 20th Century Foxes. Thanks to the surge in audience attendance to the cinema during World War II, profits at the studio increased six-fold. A lot of this was thanks to their newest star, Rita Hayworth, whom had gotten her fame by and large by being lent to other studios. From 1944 to 1946, Hayworth was named one of the top box office attractions in the world. Harry would extensively showcase Hayworth's varied dance skills in films like Tonight and Every Night from 1945 and one of her best-known films, Gilda from 46, the latter of which turned her into a femme fatale icon. In total, Hayworth made 32 films for Columbia and was, like Capra, one of the only people whom could get something out of Harry Cohn. Throughout the 40s, Harry would continue to closely monitor the budgets of Columbia's films, making sure that the studio got the maximum use out of pricey sets, costumes, and props by reusing them in other films. If you have seen a lot of Columbia films, this is why so many of the B pictures and their shorts always had a more expensive look to them compared to other studios' films at the same level at that time. It was because of Columbia's super strict recycling policy. One thing they weren't ahead of the game on was color. Columbia was the last major Hollywood studio to start producing color films, the first of which was 1942's The Desperados. Seeing how successful that was, Harry quickly used Technicolor again for Cover Girl, a Hayworth picture that released in 1944 and became a smash hit. In fact, color film was working out so well for Columbia that 1946's The Jolson Story, which had started production being shot in black and white, well, Harry had the footage scrapped and made them reshoot everything in Technicolor. Worked out, the film would be Columbia's first bona fide blockbuster, and the film had a successful sequel in 1949. In 1948, as regular listeners are all too aware, the United States versus Paramount Pictures Inc. happened, but like Universal, Columbia didn't own any theaters, so now it found itself on equal terms with the bigger studios. And maybe even a little bit better off, because they didn't just lose a massive part of their business. And while Columbia was clearly doing well, the studio's primary export remained B-pictures well into the 1950s. One thing they did get right, Columbia and Paramount were the only studios of the Big Five and Little Three to almost immediately embrace the advent of television, and Columbia responded by creating a subsidiary called Screen Gems, which was led by Jack's son slash Harry's nephew, Ralph Cohn, in the early 1950s. Screen Gems would produce television commercials for the networks in the early days before also transitioning to television and making series like The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. While they had originally been a studio without a lot of stars, that changed in the 1940s and Columbia would actually maintain a long list of its contracted talent well into the 1950s, even after other studios were having to let theirs go. This included Glenn Ford, William Holden, Jack Lemmon, and Lucille Ball. In fact, it was one of the only studios that didn't fall flat on their face during this time. Quite the opposite, actually. Columbia continued to produce 40-plus pictures a year throughout the decade, offering productions that often broke ground and kept audiences somehow coming to the theaters. This included From Here to Eternity from 53, On the Waterfront from 54, and The Bridge on the River Kwai from 57, all three of which won the Best Picture Oscar. 
Jack Cohn died in December 1956 of a pulmonary embolism, and Harry followed in February 1958 of a heart attack shortly after closing the studio short films department. 1,300 people attended Harry's funeral on the Columbia lot. It has been said that the attendance was so high because people wanted to make sure that King Cohn was truly no more. Jack's son, Ralph Cohn, whom had been groomed to take over Columbia at some point, died the following year of a heart attack, ending almost four decades of family management. And Columbia was never the same again. The new management was headed by Abe Schneider, who had joined the company as an office boy out of high school and became a director in 1929, rising through the financial side of the business. For the first time in its inception, Columbia was more concerned with the business side of dealings than the movies that they were making. Harry had been cognizant of spending, yes, but artistry had always been his priority. By the late 1960s, Columbia had a very ambiguous identity, offering kind of like the older type films like Oliver, which I believe won a Best Picture Oscar. But they also had more modern fare for the new generation of youths in the form of Easy Rider. After turning down distributing for the James Bond films, Columbia produced a series of films called the Matt Helm series, starring Dean Martin as basically an American knockoff of James Bond. Columbia also produced a James Bond spoof, which was 1967. Casino Royale. Even with, you know, the, the occasional successful film, the Screen Gems TV side of things was doing the heavy lifting, keeping the studio in the black. That was until, for the first time in its 40-plus year history, in 1966, the studio posted a loss and there were rumors of a takeover. At this point, Columbia was surviving solely on the profits being made from Screen Gems. So much so, on December 23, 1968, Screen Gems merged back into Columbia Pictures Corporation and became part of the newly formed Columbia Pictures Industry, Inc. Maurice Clermont, a well-known corporate raider, attempted to gain a controlling interest in Columbia around this time, going so far as joining forces with the Paris Bank, which owned 20% of Columbia. But the Communications Act of 1934 prohibited foreign ownership of more than one-fifth of an American company that had broadcast holdings, so once again, Screen Gems saved the day for Columbia. Since backlots had become less needed due to location shooting being far more in vogue, the studio relocated from their home on Gower to enter into a partnership with the also struggling Warner Brothers, which they called the Burbank Studios. Both companies would share the Warner lot in Burbank through this agreement. Also through the deal, Warner gained control of Columbia's old lot, selling it off in 1977. From 1971 until the end of 1987, Columbia's international distribution operations were also a joint venture with Warner Brothers. Despite ridding themselves of costly real estate, Columbia was nearly bankrupt by the early 1970s and the powers that be at the studio did a drastic overhaul. In July of 1973, Alan J. Hirschfield took over as president and CEO after his company, Allen & Company, had gained a majority share in the studio. He brought aboard former talent agent David Bagelman to head motion picture production, and he did 
Greenlight, quite a few of Columbia's more memorable films from this era, including Shampoo, The Deep, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind being among them. However, in 1977, Beagleman got busted for misappropriating funds in the amount of 60 grand. He was suspended in July, but was reinstated five months later until public outcry against his reinstatement forced him to resign for good in February of 1978. The next major replacement for head of film was Francis T. Vincent, an attorney who had never worked in film. I'm starting to see why the 80s were such a bad movie era. All the left-brained businessmen were in charge of deciding what movies got made. And we all know that they were doing lots of coke. But the 80s were a slightly better time for Columbia. Slightly. And there were hits like The Blue Lagoon and Stripes. And that was enough for Columbia to attract Coca-Cola, which bought the studio on June 22nd, 1982, for $750 million. Just before that, in 1981, Columbia narrowly avoided a takeover by Las Vegas financier Crick Krikorian, who owned MGM by this point, I think for the first or second time. For more about that, there's an episode from September 2020. But the federal government stopped Krikorian from acquiring Columbia because he already had controlling interest in MGM. And if he got Columbia, that violated antitrust laws. So yeah, now Coke was in charge. So weird to think that like Coke was in charge of a movie studio. With Coke in charge of Columbia, new studio head Frank Price then mixed big hits like Tootsie, The Karate Kid, and Ghostbusters with many, many, many spendy flops. Frank Price left Columbia in 1983. The studio head job would change four times within the first five years of Coke purchasing Columbia. To share in the increasing cost of film production, in 1982, Columbia, HBO, and CBS entered into the joint venture Nova Pictures, later renamed TriStar Pictures, which became the first major Hollywood studio to be formed in Hollywood since RKO in 1928. For five years, Columbia limped along, releasing hit films a li little bit more towards the flops than not and also expanding its holdings. TriStar was doing pretty good, thanks to distribution of movies like Rainbow First Blood Part Two and The Natural. TriStar began to branch out in late 1986, when it purchased the Lowe's theater chain for $295 million. After, in 1985, the Justice Department had eased up slightly on studios owning movie theaters, probably because they weren't doing as well financially. TriStar also took over VHS distribution of its own films. After two whole years without a majorly successful film, after Ghostbusters, Columbia recruited British producer David Putnam to head the studio. Putnam despised the state of the American film industry, his main complaint being the inflated egos and paychecks of the day's stars. With the best intentions in mind and a desire to produce more realistically grounded films, the projects Putnam greenlit were mostly flops and he was gone in about a year. For those of you who remember the Ishtar episode from a couple months back, Putnam was the head of Columbia, who notoriously may or may not have, but probably definitely did, sabotage the post-production of Ishtar, which of course went on to become one of the biggest financial flops in Hollywood history. Ishtar's failure made Coke stakeholders anxious, so Columbia was spun off in December 1987, eventually being sold to TriStar Pictures for $3.1 billion. Coke maintained a 49% stake. 
Putnam was succeeded by Dawn Steele, the first woman to run a major Hollywood film studio. In 1989, Columbia released the instant classic When Harry Met Sally, but it wasn't enough to reverse the studio's fortunes, and it became a struggle to finance further productions. On September 28, 1989, the Columbia Empire, which included a vast television empire in addition to its film side, was sold to electronics giant Sony for $3.4 billion. Producers Peter Gruber and John Peters were brought aboard to serve as co-heads of production, while Sony also acquired their company for $200 million on September 29, 1989. In 1990, Sony paid hundreds of millions of dollars and liquidated several assets to buy the MGM backlot from Time Warner, the parent company for Warner Brothers at the time, putting an end to the Burbank Studios partnership. The former MGM lot was briefly renamed Columbia Studios, which Sony spent $100 million refurbishing. Goober and Peters did not last long due to a string of spendy flops, forcing Sony to report a $2.4 billion write-off in 1994. It bears mentioning the irony of Columbia moving to the MGM backlot because for most of his life, or most of his professional life anyway, Harry Cohn was super jealous of Louis B. Mayer. And now MGM had no backlot, but Columbia called the old MGM lot its home. Columbia announced plans of a rival James Bond franchise since they owned the rights to Casino Royale and were planning to make a third version of Thunderball. MGM and Dejac, I think is how you say it, LLC, the owners of the James Bond franchise, sued Sony in 1998 with the legal dispute ending two years later in an out-of-court settlement and no new James Bond. Sony ended up trading the Casino Royale rights for $10 million and also got the Spider-Man filming rights. Spider-Man became Columbia's most successful franchise, with the first film coming out in 2002. And then, of course, came that whole MCU deal about 12 years later, so I'm guessing MGM probably wishes now they might have traded it for something else. In 1997, Columbia Pictures ranked as the highest-grossing movie studio in the United States, with a gross of $1.256 billion. In 1998, Columbia and TriStar merged to form the Columbia TriStar Motion Picture Group, also known as Columbia TriStar Pictures, though both studios still produce and distribute under their own names, so they're just umbrellas under the big Columbia TriStar Pictures. But everything's under Sony. On December 8, 1998, Sony Pictures Entertainment relaunched the Screen Gems brand, not for television, but as a horror and independent film distribution company after their prior indie branch had failed. Today, Columbia remains a branch under Sony Pictures, releasing films mostly as co-productions like Skyfall, 21 Jump Street, the Men in Black franchise, and this year, Morbius, Where the Crawdads Sing, and Bullet Train, among several others. So yeah, Columbia's still, Columbia's still a big boy. Columbia Pictures rose like a phoenix from the ashes of Poverty Row, the studio seemingly with nine lives. Its films leaving behind a legacy, even Louis B. Mayer might have envied. Pardon me, pal. Did you call me pal? No. It's been a long time since I heard the word pal. You too? Haven't you got any friends either? That's what I was coming to, the dirty rat. He tried to take her away from me. Ah, but he couldn't get away with it. So he trailed me. To Pittsburgh? Yes. Uh... 
And then you went to Miami, New Orleans, and Dallas? Yes, yes! <laughs> well, how did you know? You'd be surprised. <laughs> and then he caught you in Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls! <laughs> Slowly I turned. Please. Step by step. Not that, no. Don't. Inch by inch. Oh, I picked him up. I ripped his shirt. And then I knocked him down. What have I done? Blood. The judge. Blood! You! Ah, oh, there you are, Larry. Why, you? Hi, pal. <laughs> I almost caught up with you in Pittsburgh. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a humongous help. It's Thanksgiving coming up soon, you're going to be traveling. If anyone goes, hey, podcast, mention me. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. There's also buy me a coffee. I'm having a glass of wine, but normally I drink coffee. But, you know, got to bring myself down off that iced tea. I'm, I'm so screwed. I'm never going to fall asleep. Anyway, I've also got merch. Check it out the link in the show notes. Next week, the history of United Artists. The studio once described as the patients taking control of the asylum. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.